Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, joint ventures, strategic alliances, real estate, affiliate and sponsorship deals, and more, including smaller deals that you can do without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for over 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Matt Prutra is a chief financial officer experienced in scaling, transforming, and financing small business and medium-sized businesses. He makes sure that you have the resources you need to achieve your mission. Matt, I know, also has a PE background and has helped clients buy and sell businesses. So he definitely has deal experience, not only getting companies ready to uh, be sold and and be in a position to do that, but actual deal as well. Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Corey. My honor to be here. So uh, Matt, before we get into all your experience around the deals and also the CFO work, uh, the outside CFO work you do with uh, small and medium-sized businesses, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I'm guessing an outsourced CFO wasn't in at that time, but you tell me. I was going to be playing in the NBA. That's what um, I was going to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And how tall are you? Five foot nine. <laughs> I had the youthful naivete, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember those days. I'm five eight. At what, at what point did that dream come to an end? <laughs> I think probably around 16. I realized I was like, oh, yeah, I joined the high school, var- like the varsity team. Did fine, but way bigger and just got beat up. So then I realized then it wasn't going to work. If I couldn't hang out in small town Canada high school basketball, I wasn't going to make it in the NBA. <laughs> I love it. And one more question looking back. What was your first deal of any type? It could have been something small when you were a kid or early in your career. Any kind of deal that comes to mind. Ooh, good question. I probably negotiated an Xbox with my parents. Hey, I'll do all these chores and I'll I'll go mow the neighbor's lawn and I'll give you my birthday money for the next couple birthdays and Christmas money and all these things. I got my Xbox. Now, probably I was probably 14 or so. I love that future birthday when it's future draft picks. You're a- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Here we can capitalize my future income streams, mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So just give us a couple of minutes. Obviously, we mentioned that you're a CFO service. Just give us a couple of minutes on the types of clients and industries and, and how you work with clients. And, uh, and then I want to swing over to the deal side. You got it. Yeah. So I work in a couple of main industries, e-commerce. We work in clean tech, green tech. And that would include e-commerce when it comes to retail, wholesale. Like we have clients that do $30 million a year with big grocery, things like that. And we do a bit of SaaS work as well. And typical size of business is anywhere between 50 and sort of 80 to 90 million a year in revenue. And other, if you don't have that and you're funded and you have your board breathing down your neck and we're going to help you deal with them too. Love it. And and just give us a little bit on the range of services. A lot of people know what outsource CFOs do. Some people mm-hmm. less familiar. We actually moved a couple of years ago from just one accountant and a bookkeeper to a full mm-hmm. outsource CFO. Uh, Wonderful. It's made the world of difference for us. Yeah. I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you talk about it. 
Sure, yeah. So there's the universal services. Start with the easy ones. So bookkeeping, controllership. We just make sure the books are in order. You're compliant with your governments and all that, getting clients getting paid, vendors getting paid, all these things. So that's easy. From there, we stack in like a financial analyst team and a CFO. So there we're looking at where's this business going? Where could it go? How do we optimize the levers and the balance sheet and the margins and the collection timeframes? How do we optimize all that to get you where you want to go or where your board or you as CEO want to go? Along that path, we're with you, we're embedded. So we look at contracts for you. We look at hiring planning. We look at what services could you offer? What products could you offer? What products should you cut? Like we just did with a client of mine, we're cutting 50% of their SKUs because they don't move as much uh, money. And so I'm just saying, let's not focus on those. Let's cut them. So we have hyper-focus on the ones that deliver. So now we only have, yeah, like four categories out of the 12 that we were currently selling. We're cutting a bunch. We're cutting business units, all kinds of things to optimize for growth along the path. We look at governance. So how do you do internal controls? How do you make sure that there's no, what are you stealing money? We look at board or investor reporting. How do you make sure that the board investors know enough about you so they're comfortable, but you don't want them all in the weeds, right? So how do you optimize that relationship? And then just a range of things, right? So we sometimes we, yeah, contracts, all kinds of stuff. Uh, financing, of course, Series A, Series B, venture, all the whole thing we do. Yeah, you know, and so listeners, I'm sure anybody who has listened to this podcast or otherwise understands deals understands that there's so much in that list of of items that you just said that can ultimately end up affecting deals. Obviously, whether it's raising capital, whether it's selling the company, mm-hmm. there's two big buckets, at least, of what you talked about. One is all these optimization things that makes make a company more profitable. EBITDA goes up, obviously. Mm-hmm. You get multiples of EBITDA is one of the ways it comes to value, but however the valuation method is, the bottom line is if more EBITDA the bottom line, the more value most Absolutely. companies have. I understand that there are some tech companies that have no EBITDA and sell, but that that's a but even then there, there's other efficiencies that could be. Mm-hmm. So that's is one category, and then there's another category in what Matt said, which is all around like the governor stuff and the cleanup stuff and whatever, which is all the stuff that anybody, any buyer, any investor is going to look for in due diligence and totally going to help either get a deal done or not or raise concerns and things like that. So Matt, why don't we just jump into that that lead in? Part of what you also do is help companies get prepared to, to sell and raise capital. Yeah. I gave a high overview, but yeah, let's delve in a little bit about how those services impact getting deals done, valuation, things like that. Sure. Typically, someone will come to me sometimes a year before they want to sell and one to two years. So now there's lots that we can do with two years runway, right? So this client is doing about 20 million a year, maybe 25 million a year. They're doing like 20% EBITDA. So great. And they're growing 50% or more a year. So what are we doing? A, we're, we're budgeting. So first thing first, let's just budget. Let's show an acquirer that we know how to budget. Let's show an acquirer we know how to stick to a budget. So that's table stakes, basically. From there, we're looking at systems. Do they have the right systems that they're going to need to leverage into a bigger company? They want to grow to $40 million and then exit. So we're putting in an ERP, material requirements planning, inventory forecasting, institutionalizing some of these practices that show the big boys that you know what you're doing, right? From there... What we're trying to do now is work on getting the owners like not fully out of the day-to-day, but to the point where they can disappear for a month and the business just runs without them. So we're looking at operating systems, team alignment, strategic goal setting, all those kind of things. And of course, everything can be systemized, even strategy. So we just got to implement the right system. We use playing to win typically. 
And so we're looking at playing the win plus a combination of like EOS and OKRs. And again, if you can set your corporate level goals and your team knows the systems to set the strategy and cascade everything down, the business can actually run without you. At least it can. Well, you maybe just show up once a quarter for planning. Other than that, we're optimizing margins. They're really good. So there's not a lot of work to do there, but we're looking at dual sourcing just to make sure you have failovers for supply chain. We're looking at, oh, the other thing we're doing is the most small businesses, their books aren't super clean or they aren't always. So what we're doing is we're trying to walk the balance between keeping Apple Sam happy, keeping our clients happy, but then having acquisition ready books. So what we're doing for this client, we're not ready to do full proper gap bookkeeping yet, but we're do, what we're doing is my team is doing it like an off books sort of gap records so that these sort of off books gap financial statements can be reviewed by the acquirer and we'll prove the balances, but not within their QuickBooks file. Because you do need to switch to proper accrual accounting, but not everyone's ready to do it right away. So we're going to do this off of QuickBooks. What else? There's more to do. Contracts and staff contracts and all these things to prepare for as we get up into the bigger leagues. Hello, listen, folks. That's a great example for those out there. Obviously, if you use a great outsourced CFO service, like Matt has, they can help you. But this is also a laundry list of the kind of things that you should be looking at mm-hmm. in your business. By the way, whether you're going to sell or raise capital or not, these are, all, these are best practices for successful businesses on the deal side as well. You know? do, do you think I missed anything in that list, Corey? I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty comprehensive. I, I think what you, didn't, you said it, but I want to emphasize it, is that, is that ability to have the business be able to run without the principles, right? That's mm-hmm. such a big factor in, in deals and valuation and the ability to sell a company, certainly in the, in the ability to sell a company that you don't then have to be locked into a five-year employment contract mm-hmm. and continue to work if that's not what you want to do, for example. And also, even if you are willing to be locked in, you know, you're going to get high evaluations if the company is not, not as dependent upon you and it's got more systems in place. So, so I'll, you know, you said it, but I'll highlight that one because cool. it's, you know, and it's interesting because a lot of entrepreneurs that I know, you know, around the entrepreneurs organization community, for example, which I've been a part of for many years. Yeah. Everybody, Michael Gerber's e-myth is, is a Bible, work, work on your business, not in your business. It's yeah. a mantra. It's what everybody talks about. But it, it's easy to say, but the ability to get there is really the challenge. And certainly the services you guys provide help people get there. So it's great. I want to take you back to you spent some time in PE before you had yeah. the business, right? Talk to me, how, how did you, what was that career trajectory? How did you get into PE? And then I want to talk about some, some of the lessons that you learned from that, but just that, yeah. how did you get that into that space? Let's start there. I'm going to go ahead and just be honest, and it was a total fluke. I was a, a good accountant, good controller, and I went to an accounting firm because I was like, oh, I'm going to help a lot of people by working in an accounting firm. And anyway, that's not how it works, but I was approached by this firm. They said, hey, and I was on a board of a nonprofit and a couple things, and they somehow found my LinkedIn profile. And they said, hey, do you want to come be our VP finance? And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm just like a controller level, whatever. And they said, yeah, please interview. And I was like, okay, cool. So I went and I interviewed and did really well in interviews and the case studies and all the things, and I got the role. So they're like, okay, here you are. And I was like, you guys know I don't know PE, right? And they're like, yeah, but you seem smart and you seem coachable, so let's go. So I had to learn from top to bottom what PE was all about. When buying a business, I had not bought a business before that. I hadn't sold one before that. I hadn't done due diligence before that. They, to their credit, taught me everything. To my credit, I worked my ass off to try to learn it. But yeah, and so from VP, I was promoted to CFO within the year. And then I was group CFO within the two, three years. And 
Um, because we were small, I did obviously all the back office, but I got to do deal side as well. So I worked deal side all across Canada, real estate, private lending, the whole thing. And it was a wonderful experience, wonderful team. I would be doing it now if I didn't want to work from home, basically. And uh, yeah, I got to do everything down to even writing up term sheets and, and redlining documentation back and forth at the finish line. Interesting, because obviously we've talked about PE on this podcast. I, mm-hmm. uh, I, I have many clients who are PE funded or or have sold to PE funded aggregators, oh, or yeah. that kind of stuff. And th- there's a lot of people have a very strong opinion on PE. And uh, of course, the easy answer is not every PE firm is equal and all that kind of stuff, whatever. But, but there is, listen, there is a fun, one of the things I would say to my clients is there's a fundamental difference the minute you take anybody else's capital, mm-hmm. right? Let's just start there, even if it's friends and family or angel or whatever, 100%. right? Uh, there's a fundamental difference there. And then there's a difference when you take PE capital because that's, oh, yeah. that's professional capital. And and you've heard horror stories of founders say they got pushed out of their own company. You've heard great stories of people who say, hey, this was the money we needed to do Catalyst and they're a great partner. But from the inside of, on the PE, from the inside of the PE view, it's interesting. What is you know, that whole range of conversations and at least perceived outcomes from founders? Mm-hmm. Um, give us, give me your thoughts on that and what, what your experience was and what you saw and where. Yeah. While I was there, we never pushed anybody out, but we gave people a lot of headaches, right? When when you tell us the project is going to go a certain way, and I'm watching the because I monthly reporting or quarterly reporting, and I'm seeing it's not going that way, I'm asking you questions, and you're we're meeting and we're talking, and there's no easy answers, and you're gonna you're gonna send me your first answers, and I'm gonna go okay, that triggered this question and that question, and so sometimes a quarterly review for a port a portco portfolio company would be a week or two if I didn't like what was happening. Yeah. And so just imagine the drag on your time. You have to do all your regular work and you have to let me fuck with you for two weeks, once a quarter, basically, sorry, excuse my language, but you have to do that and all your regular work. And sometimes I can give you grace, but I'm managing tens of millions of money from somebody else. So I fiduciary to them. So I'm going to make you do what I need you to do. And when we see things are getting a little tougher, then we're going, okay, what are we doing now? So now it's monthly reporting. Now you need to send me this certificate or that certificate or this document or that document. Now I want to see your rent roll every month or something like that. It's, we're getting, as the trouble gets worse, we're getting into more and more detail with you, which means more and more of your time. And then if it gets really bad, let's say you default, right? Then it's, am I stepping in? Yeah. Are you allowed to have your business for a little while longer? What are we doing then? Do you need more money? And if you need more money, what do you think happens then? The constraints get even tighter on you with if you need more money from us, if you need even. And so we had someone ask for more leeway. And we're like, okay, we'll give you that leeway, but we're going to take it away over here. So nothing comes free. And we were a friendly PE group, to be honest. Like we weren't as harsh as others could have been. We never had to call funding. We never kicked anybody out, but like really we did give people headaches and it's not because it's not because I want to, but I, again, I'm managing, I told a bunch of people that are, they're going to get a certain percentage return and I have to give that. I got to make sure it's coming. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because there's always this tension. I know when somebody's presenting to a PE firm or any investment, venture capital, even angels, whatever, but certainly for, there's this PEs expecting a certain returns in order to raise the capital, the entrepreneur, the founder, the management group, whoever it is, wants to show projections that will get them at least that return and more yeah. to get yeah. them excited about the deal. Yeah. But then practically what PE is going to do in most cases, and it's understandable, 
is to say, okay, if we're going to buy your productions and I'm the right to deal based upon them, then we're going to have certain expectations that you're actually going to hit them. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So I, I always say to clients that you want to balance your optimistic projections where there are enough, obviously, to get somebody interested if you if it's legit, but understand that you don't want to overplay your hand because that sets up for disappointment and consequences. Again, not because the pe- people are bad people, but just because mm-hmm. they're structuring and underwriting the deal based upon what you've told them you can achieve. And that's the expectations that, that you've created for them. Yeah. And I will say in my experience, because I work in like the UK and Canada, US and Australia and all over. I, I've noticed that in the UK, investors are typically sort of a little more conservative, mostly in North America. Your run rate better be 100 million in five years. Yeah. In the UK, investors are okay with 40 or 50 million pounds because I, I don't know what it is exactly why, but that is more realistic in general. And so it seems that there are, you can still raise money with a run rate like that, uh, even in your model in the UK. Interesting. Yeah, that's the right. Things in different places. The other thing that's interesting to me is that that process you described of holding the founders and management accountable. And then if things don't improve or if the questions unveil <laughs> deeper issues, yeah. getting even more in terms of whether it's meeting frequency or the level of detail or reporting or knowing mm-hmm. it's information. Um, you know, on the positive side, what I've people that I know have had really good experiences with their PE firm will often say to me or say, I've seen them say presentations or whatever as well, that the benefit of working with PE is that it brings discipline brings financial discipline, brings sure. operational discipline, brings governance and reporting discipline. And often that's something that companies that most companies don't start out with those disciplines just because that's not the way entrepreneurs no. work and you don't have the time or money or and it's not necessary, frankly, in the very beginning, although the earlier you get some of these systems in place, the better. But practically, that's just not the way the entrepreneurs work. And some of the ones that where it's worked out well often will tell me that exactly those words that they appreciated and needed the discipline. Yeah, I would say, again, in as much as I gave people headaches, most of the time they were appreciative because then when it came to, oh, hey, my bank is saying this, we obviously have a view of what banks are saying in general too. And so sometimes we can come to the table with you, with your bank. And there's a few situations in which we help people, I wouldn't say out of a jam, but we help people get uh, maybe a little more than they would have gotten from their banks if we weren't at the table. And then, of course, Someone goes, hey, Paul, we're looking at our budgets and we see this. What do you think? Then, okay, great. You're coming to me. Cool. So now we can go, okay, when I budget, I look at this and this, and these are some best practices that I know. And here's some ways your controller can do the reporting. And here's a chart of accounts that we like to see. And there's a lot of things that we can be helpful with. And and you'd probably agree that like when you look at a PE group, it's not just how much money will they give you, but how do they work with their founders is important to know. Yeah, absolutely. So you were there, did you say about six years or? Uh, Five years, I think. Okay. And then, so what, I mean, and you alluded to something about if you didn't want to be working remote. So what, yeah. what, give me a little more on that transition. Anyway, sure. Was, is it this out, uh, business that you have now that you, that yes, you, it is. Yeah. In? So I was working, so I'm in, in Canada and I'm in the Vancouver area. So I, I was commuting about three hours a day from my home to like downtown Vancouver to do this thing. When COVID happened, uh, I got all this time back and I was like, oh, I see my kids so much more. And I was like, so I told them, I was like, Hey, when COVID's over, I'm going to work from home. Like, four days a week, three days, whatever. They said, actually, we need to we need to come back to the office full time. So I was like, well, I, I can't do that. I had done it for four years. I missed dinners with my kids during the week for five years, basically. So I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then I started working on this. I had been helping a, a couple friends with their finances just on the side of my desk and really enjoyed it, to be honest. And so then I asked these friends, hey, do you have anybody else that needs help? And slowly just started getting 
whatever else. And then eventually I said, hey, this is going really well. I'm going to move on. And yeah, I still see them probably once a quarter, the, the same guys that I used to work with, good people. But now I'm doing this full time. Love it. Love it. It sounds like it's going well. It's been fun. It's, awesome. yeah. it's been great. Yeah. So it's interesting because you've been, I talk about these mindset shifts often. I talk about there's a mindset shift or a different mindset between an employee and an entrepreneur. Mm. And and then I also make a distinction or or say there's a different mindset between an entrepreneur and a deal maker. There are plenty of successful entrepreneurs who are not deal makers. They grow mm-hmm. they're good at growing at maybe they're great at marketing or sales or whatever it is. They grow organically and they can build a very nice business that way. Mm-hmm. I think they're missing out on another growth sleeve. Sure. Whether it's MA or capital raising or joint ventures or strategic alliances or licensing or we talk about all those kind of deals. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can tell you about an incredible resource my team and I have put together for you. Secrets of Deal-Driven Growth, Creative Ways to Grow Your Business Even in Challenging Times is a powerful ebook that helps you take DealQuest podcast episodes and apply them to your own life and business. This is the ideal tool for anyone looking for creative ways to grow as dealmakers, and you can get yours now. It's as easy as heading to coreycuffer.com slash workbook and downloading your copy. While you're there, you can also consider joining our dynamic, deal-driven community of founders, experts, small business owners, and entrepreneurs. Now back to the show. You've been on the PE side as a deal maker. You've clearly been an entrepreneur. You've helped clients do, do deals. What do you think, first of all, do you buy my premise that these are different mindsets? Second of all, what in these clients, everything you do is going to prepare people, what you're doing now, for deals, but not everybody's going to do one. What's your observation about Entrepreneurs, even your own experience about those different mindsets and, and who was successful doing deals as well as uh, just being a successful entrepreneur running the company. Mm. Oh, wow. Good question. I do buy the premise that it's different mindsets. I am still proving myself as an entrepreneur. Like I'm a great CFO, great deal maker. And will I have the staying power as an entrepreneur? Who fucking knows? I think I will, but we're proving it out daily. Yep. I don't, I would say we're not in a, like we're doing like we're doing fine but we're not like stable and the business won't run without me yet so there's a ways to go sure i think entrepreneurship is of the things that we mentioned to me feels the hardest of all the things i've had to do you've got to do everything like you've got to know a little bit about everything you've got to be able to let you, like so i had a conversation with my sales team today and they're like we want to do this and i'm like what about all these things and they're like you're worrying too much and i was like you know what i gotta get the fuck out of your way so you have to be able to let go and know when to jump in and so entrepreneurship is hard. A common thing I see among successful entrepreneurs is thus far, they operate as, as lean as they can for as long as they can, is what I've seen. They are focused. They know when to say no. They attract good talent and they let them run when they find them. I don't know that there's a ton of other similarities that I can see, but I think those three are huge. Saying no is something I'm working on right now. Saying no to more things. Successful deal maker, ah, man. I think a really good listener is what I've seen to be really effective. And my managing director from this P group is who I'm thinking about right now. Outstanding listener, super open mind, looking for a win in a situation. Can how do both of us win? And then just super smart. He, this guy, he this guy did deals like with made like billions, right? And to learn from him was a wonderful experience. And just so smart and just knows a bunch of the tools and the processes and these kind of things. But I don't know that I have a hugest purview on deal makers, but that's what I've seen. Yeah, no, that's that's great. It's interesting because yeah, trust me, I mean I I've had various businesses, including law firm for, for decades and 
I've had the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial journey. And in a lot of ways, I do agree that's maybe the, the toughest one. But I also find it's funny. Some people are just really natural. I think it depends on the person, but they just don't wrap their heads around like deal making. Obviously, oh, you, know, yeah, yeah. you come out of you come out of you come out of that world even before you became an entrepreneur. So that might seem a, you know more natural. But I see. So I don't know if, if you're seeing that in your clients as well, if there's anyone who you know has strong natural entrepreneurship but isn't is hesitant in some way or for whatever reason hasn't taken advantage of deal opportunities that they might be able to. Oh, yeah. I think people know less about deals than they should. Like you just mentioned, I think I'm learning a little bit, if I'm honest, about M&A and JVs and all these things. I don't, I think more people could grow faster, better if they knew if they had more of that insight. I really do. Even me. And now you've got me thinking, actually, because there could be some strategic alliances or JVs that I could do that would be very value add for both parties and clients. So anyway, I think that in general, if entrepreneurs knew deals better, they'd be better off, 100%. Yeah, and listen, frankly, it's one of the reasons I do this podcast, right? It's to provide that content and, and the different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of the questions I often ask, and I'll just, I'll throw it out because it benefits the audience and, and you might find that interesting is, and I'm sure you have questions you ask for what you do. I always say, hey, listen, what what frustration, pain point, et cetera, whatever do you have, or where are you, where is there something in your business that you haven't you know, been able, you're not growing as fast as you like, you you're trying to get this geographical expansion, but somehow it's not working. You want to go into a new mm. product line, an ancillary product line, or tap into a new industry. And what happens sometimes is that it's just because they don't, like you said, they don't know the alternatives. They try to do all those things organically and they're frustrated, right? They try yeah. to, whatever, hire a sales team in Birmingham, Alabama, because that's where they want to, whatever they want to expand to, but oh. they, they don't know the market, whatever. And they don't think about maybe they can acquire somebody down there or do a joint venture or a joint marketing deal or whatever, or they're trying to get into sell into a new industry because they got a great product who would like that. And I was asked them who has access to that industry already. Mm. Okay, don't worry how the deal is going to be structured, but who has access? To, oh, well, there's so and so company. They're not competitive to us. They do they sell this other product, but it's in that direct market. Great. There's a tons of mm. deals we can do with them. You can do a joint marketing agreement. You can do a strategic alliance. You can do a joint venture company that you create that you call on with them. You can. Acquire them, they can acquire you, whatever. You can license, maybe it's, you know, I don't expect clients or prospects or business owners to understand the deals, but if you ask them the question about what is the frustration or what is the opportunity you're not being able to take advantage of, or what's, what do you really mm. want to accomplish it and be able to do, there's probably a deal for that to at least consider. I like that a lot. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think most people are, it's buy or sell. That's yeah. most people's exposure to deals. And even for someone like me that come from a different environment, it, it's still hard to think, to not think like that. And, but I am, ex- yeah, I'm exploring a couple of things right now, like a JV, but yeah, but I think I could do it better, to be honest. Listen, that's the whole reason we're doing this. You know, yeah, you, that's great. You, you help your clients do a lot of things better. And this is what we help people do. Totally. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Excellent. So what, what have you seen, whether it's from your PE experience or from what you do now, which includes helping people prepare and mm-hmm. skills, and you've done some work with some clients who sold and bought, what do you see that, what are some of the things that people make mistakes on that run them into trouble in terms of achieving those deals? Mm. I think, honestly, a big one is the bookkeeping side of things. I see that all the time. The books aren't in, in great order or key things are not done well. I helped someone sell who um, did all their recurring revenue through Stripe. 
and we're getting to the weeds here, but they did it through Stripe. And so in the bookkeeping, they got net deposits from Stripe. And so that was their net revenue. And the acquirer came by and said, okay, prove to me which clients did what and how do they pay. But you can't use net deposits from Stripe because they hack off their spread and their fees. And so then you can't reconcile anything. And so that was a major project for me to reconcile revenue from clients to their deposits in Stripe. It took a lot of time. And it would have been a deal killer if they didn't have someone that could have done that. Other people can do it. I did it in this case. But it would have been a deal killer, I think, if they couldn't reconcile. But so I would say bookkeeping in general is one that needs to be done really well. Another one is tax exposure, especially in the States. If you don't know where you're exposed, you can't rep that you're not exposed. And so that has been a, a tough one to get through with a few people. What else? I would say, yeah, the overpromising issue. So what you highlighted is if you overpromise, and it's hard to deliver on it. But what I've seen too is you overpromise, and diligence takes too long, and you, they begin to see you overpromise in the diligence period, which that is a shitty conversation to have yes. with somebody. Yeah, we had a deal where it was diligence took four months, and they eventually we lost the deal to be honest. But and I shouldn't say we, the client lost the deal, and the client projected one way and then we were all fighting about how do we do it and I was like look just anyway but as the diligence progressed they kept going well, why are your revenues lower than this month why are they now lower this month so for various reasons not just that we lost this deal there was shareholder issues but that's one contracts documentation is another if you don't have employee contracts if you don't have material supplier contracts again that's another problem uh, IP licensing trademarks is one those are some of the biggest ones that have gotten me stuck yeah, and the other thing you lose to the time factor, right? Even in that case where you had to come in and clean up all the book, the stripe, and um, fortunately they were able to get you in and got it done, and it didn't. The deal got done, but something like that could just because I always talk about there's a rhythm and there's a flow to deals, and mm-hmm. on both sides, if you slow it down too much, sometimes it'll kill a deal. Totally, uh, and if you push it forward too too anxiously too hard, it can kill a deal. But it's one thing to say, oh, we can hire great people to come in and clean stuff up for us. But first of all, if the buyer is already there, right? If you're not doing this pre going out, let's say you have a banker and you go out on a process and you do it all in advance. Okay. Maybe that's a big pain and headache to, to get all the cleanup done and it does slow you down, but at least it doesn't kill a deal because you haven't gone to shop to that's shop right. the company yet. If you're doing this after you have, maybe it's an unsolicited office, so you want ready to sell, but it's a good enough offer where you say, yeah. oh, look at this. Mm-hmm. And now you're scrambling. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, the fact that you have to scramble is going to have the buyer have some hesitation, right? Mm-hmm. Like I say, I always talk about it in due diligence. It's always, it's always the worry if this smoke is there fire, right? So anything that's yeah, yeah. shaky, they don't know what's behind that. And then also just time, there's a lot that can happen. The revenues can go down and the market can change. Interest rates can go yes. up, right? So time's not on your side. I'm not talking about pushing it artificially fast, but staying in the flow of the deal. If you have stuff that slows you down, any of those issues that Matt brought up, it can really just the delay in getting that act together can really hurt you on getting the deal, the deal done. And I will say, I've seen a couple of things that help a deal, and I'm not just trying to toot your horn, but good counsel is incredibly helpful. I've seen both not great and very good, and and both on the broker side as well. So good brokers and good counsel. When you have good counsel, they know how to listen, they know how to give people what they want and get you what you want, and they know how to negotiate the tricky clauses instead of picking a fight with someone. It's more of a, oh, tell me what you think, and let's co-create the way out of this. And I think having a deal maker for a counsel and one that's good 
is the best way to go through. And then broker, of course, too. The broker that I worked with on this, the one with the Stripe issues, the broker did a very good job of saying, look, guys, we're talking about X. Let's leave it. It's fine. We've done it. And he was, Todd Tasky is his name, very good broker uh, that I worked with on that. And counsel side as well. We had a deal that I was involved in. We had a litigator on the other side of the table and it was a fucking nightmare. Everything was a fight. Everything was a gotcha. And our counsel on our side was cool, calm, collected, talked him off the ledge a number of times and again, helped us get it done. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, people who are less initiated in deals uh, might think that, let's say you have a, a serial acquirer mm -hmm. uh, and they might, you might think they'd prefer if they were less experienced or counsel on the other side, on the sell mm -hmm. side, because, oh, they can take advantage, whatever. If you mm -hmm. speak to any consistent buyer, whether it's the business people or whether it's their lawyers, they're going to say they want quality counsel, 100%. quality experience deal counsel on the other side of the deal because they don't mind. They're not afraid of, because the aggregators who, especially the ones who do multiple deals, they know exactly what they're willing to give in, in the agreement, yeah. right? They've got a model on the way they do it. They've got some play in certain clauses. They know they're going to do that. If they're not tripping if, if if you came in and asked for ridiculous things that they just won't do the deal, they'll do the next one. So mm -hmm. they're not worried about good counsel. They they just get crazy. I, I had somebody, I was at a conference once and we were talking about it and it was the CEO, one of the, one of the aggregates in the financial services and the wealth management space. Mm -hmm. And he said to me that, yeah, we just don't. We used to try to work our way through it. Now we actually look at the background of the counsel of the seller. And if they are not dealers, we tell them if you don't get another lawyer, we're not, there's no point. We're not doing a deal. You need that, to get, you know, like that they, lesson cost me 40 grand. I will never make it again. My deal could have got done for 2025. I paid 65 to get it done. The guy on the other end, he had an issue with uh, representing that we own all the assets we say we own. And he's like, why are we doing that? I'm like, because that's how it works. And again, so I learned my lesson, paid a lot to get that lesson, but here we are. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. I always want competent counsel on the other side of a deal. Good stuff. What else? What are you seeing? Whether it's whether it's in prepping your clients in the way you do, which obviously impacts deals positively, or an outside factors, economic factors, or whatever. Just what are you seeing out there? Any trends? Any interesting things around entrepreneurial growth and deal and deal making that you're seeing? Oh man. I, I I don't know that I have enough info to to talk about trends. To be very frank, like I haven't done. Uh, a deal for a while. Oh, I did a series A. I did a couple of series A's in the beginning of this year. And okay. from my point of view, the, the, the trends there is everything's taking longer than yeah. it should. And I've done some financings this year and brutally long. I haven't done any sales or exits this year. But I would say, yeah, if I can lean on the venture and the financing as a touch point, things are taking way longer. And my suspicion is that banks and, and dealer, deal makers are letting things stretch just a little bit longer to see how things go. I would say that reporting and then the way that they're checking on their reporting, I think, is a bit more in detail than it was two years ago. Yep. Um, the, the big one for me is the, the length of time to get something done right now. No, and that's huge. Listen, financing, those, we, we talk about those deals as well. And mm -hmm. obviously, not only is cost the capital up, but but just the money out there. But it's just, I, I think you're right. The time it takes to underwrite the deals, the criteria, the mm -hmm. Yeah, the level of due diligence. The explanations alone, yeah. like they're going, oh, okay, what, what happened here? I'm like, this is what happened. Show us on a spreadsheet, do the waterfall chart. Okay, okay, fine. So yeah, that's been tougher this year. And now that's the trend we're seeing as well. And you, you have experience in multiple countries. You already talked about one difference 
between the UK in mm-hmm. terms of uh, P expectations on returns and things like that. Any other country-to-country differences that are interesting that you can think of? I feel like the Canadian and UK entrepreneurs is a bit more conservative. Yep. The US, from what I can tell, there's a lot of aggressive growth planning and movement, forward movement. And I, that's not a bad thing, I don't think, actually. I think the, in, the, in terms of the UK, that one of my frustrations was with that, with someone being very conservative, taking too long to make a decision. But the US, kind of, there's a balance between them. Other differences are the banking takes a bit longer in the UK, from what I've experienced as of late. It's just getting the bankers all on side and singing from the same song sheet is taking a longer time. Other than that, I think the UK, your boards and investors, you get a bit less leeway. You, you Yeah, I think they're a bit tighter. They want to watch everything more. Other than that, I'm not totally sure. The markets, of course, like paying for customers in the, in the markets is hugely different. It's way more expensive in the US typically for most companies. Canada and the UK are still, you can still do some interesting work with, with customer acquisition costs and, and, and scale a bit quicker. Uh, but of course, the market's smaller. So there is that. Yeah, yep. good stuff. If people want to find out more about your company and your mm-hmm. services, what's the best place for them to go? Yeah, my website is adex.co, so E-I-G-H-T-X dot C-O. And I'm on LinkedIn, Matt Putra. Come find me. I'm pretty active on there, commenting, chatting, making tools for people. So yeah, both those places are good. My final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for mm-hmm. me, that means everything from freedom around the world for all people from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and have had a boss. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Oh man, freedom. Freedom is, I think, knowing that I have a say in what I'm going to do, where I'm going to do it, how I'm going to do it is freedom. And that's relation to my kids and vacations and where I spend my money and what I do with my time and where I go and all these things. I think it's the ability to choose. And for me, this entrepreneurial journey has given me more of that than I have ever had before, both in terms of like money and everything else. But I can choose to log out early and spend the day with the kids. I can choose to, to I don't know, do a vacation when I wasn't thinking of it. But, oh, hey, there's an opportunity. Let's just go. I can choose to... Yeah, I can choose to say no to a client where yeah. if you work for somebody, you can't always say no. Yeah, I'll tell you that. What about being able to say no is is pretty pretty cool. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I've said no to audits and tax after I left the PE group. No more audits <laughs> and tax for me. Love it. Love it. Matt, thank you for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thank you. This was awesome. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. The Deal Den is a place where entrepreneurs, high-level executives, and business leaders come together, support each other's growth and success, and share what's working best, as well as what challenges we are facing right now. You will get input not only from me, but from all of our members. We collaborate and serve each other. To join us, go to coreycupfer.com slash deal I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.